You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. All right, welcome to the Grindstone Podcast, the official podcast of the Purdue Department of Philosophy. We have a special guest today, someone we're very excited to have here in studio. Tom Scholl is joining us. Tom is the sponsor of the Scholl Lecture Series, uh, which is happening today. We have Jen and Ishmael visiting us from Columbia University. I'll say a little bit about that at the end. Uh, but in the meantime, allow Mr. Scholl to introduce himself. Tom, thanks for joining us. Matt, thanks thanks for having me. Um, um, it's, it's a pleasure to be here for the lecture tonight and to see you again. Yeah, uh, good to see you. Thank you. Uh, so I came to Purdue in 1966. Uh, August 1966, graduated in um, 1970. Okay. Okay. And uh, so I came here as an honors double E student. Um, electrical engineering. Electrical engineering, right, because I was a ham radio operator and I was a science fair guy and, you know. That's I like awesome. I liked math and science, but I also liked writing. So uh, Interesting. I was writing poetry when I was 16. And I still continue to do that today. Um, oh, interesting. But uh, let me tell you about my very first day at, at Purdue. My parents dropped Wait, me sorry, off. Sorry, do you mind if I, if I ask you a question yeah, real quick? Yeah, sure, yeah. So if you don't mind my asking, like, where, are you, where were you coming from when you came to Purdue? Were you born and raised in Indiana? I, are you I, a Hoosier? I grew up in uh, Greencastle, Indiana. Okay, I'm from South University. Bend, born and raised. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so real quick, I want to ask you about that, though. So you said you were a ham radio operator, mm-hmm. like in high school. Right. And then it sounds like that is where you got your electrical engineering interest. Um, and so when you came to Purdue, that was your declared major. You were right. yep. in for double E. Yep. And that's that's know, awesome. I, I got to uh, test out of some math courses because I had taken those courses, you know, in high school. and Something I never so, would have so, been able to so, do. <laughs> so, I, you know, it got me started quicker. But my first day at Purdue, I'll never forget. Yeah, sorry. To, yeah. I, I, uh, this was 1966, 1966, fall of 1966. Who was uh, the my, quarterback? My, uh, Bob Greasy. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. the Greasy era. I think so. All right. Uh, uh. I think that was his last year, though. But Okay. Uh, my high school girlfriend also followed me to Purdue. Okay. And uh, so she was in a dormitory. I was at Cary Dormitory. And I went over to see her after uh, my parents dropped me off and I got moved in. It was about 5 o'clock in the evening. And as I got closer and closer to her dorm, I was hearing uh, blasting from the rooftop of her, her <laughs> dormitory, Jimi Hendrix, Purple Haze. Okay. <laughs> and, okay. you know, growing up in a small town in, like in <laughs> Greencastle, Indiana, you can't have any loud music uh, that's annoying your neighbors. Right. But here it was blasting out over the whole campus, and I thought, man, I'm, I'm going to love this. You know, this college is great. That's great. So that's how I started out. Um, that so was your first day at Purdue. That was my first day at Purdue, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so then what happened is, you know, I was taking courses in physics and um, in chemistry. Um, turns out I hated chemistry. Uh, couldn't stand it. Hmm. And mostly that's when I realized that my high school hadn't prepared me for for chemistry. I hadn't really had a good chemistry course in high school. Hmm. Um, and to this day, anybody gets a degree in chemistry or chemical engineering, I think they're, they must be geniuses, you know, because it's, that was really <laughs> tough for me. Uh, 
but I was in these big classes. You know, there were like maybe two in physics. There was probably two hundred fifty people. Mm. I, I had a advanced math class where there were maybe only twelve people. But uh, I did take that first semester a philosophy course, and I, I believe it was either it was either religion or ethics. You know, the introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are two excellent courses to introduce philosophy to new students. Absolutely, because you know, it usually gets the blood flowing. Yeah. Um, so I would go from, you know, 250 people in my physics class to my philosophy class where there's like 12, 16 people. And you That's could awesome. actually know your professor. Yeah. And so and I the got... people around you, which I think is important. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I hate to say it back in those days, you know, you could smoke in class. So a lot of us were smoking pipes and, you know, thinking very really? hard. And, you know, was, who who could bring the best tobacco to, to the classroom that the, that the girls really like? Uh, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is that, really mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. So the second semester, um, <laughs> I decided I was going to change my major from, from WE, uh, electrical engineering, to a combination of philosophy and literature. Um, wow. So, um, you know, basically when I did that, I think it's important to say my parents thought I had just blown up my entire life. You know, they yeah. they, Future they, they, down they, the they felt like, you know, I was taking a great opportunity and destroying it. And I, I never understood that feeling until I had my own kids. <laughs> <laughs> and I took them to college, and then then I, then I realized what what I put them through. Uh, you know, when I made this decision, they and, and you made them all study electrical engineering. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, anyway, uh, I, I could go on and on, but you know, so I no, that's amazing. So let me so let me ask this. So you took this ethics class. Now, at the time, was that like a general education? Like, what? Why did you even sign up for that class? Was that something? Well, that was. A, I think it was a required. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, liberal arts course that could you, know, you could take a philosophy class or you could take something else. Yeah, and so I, sort I, of part of the core curriculum. And, and you know, <clears throat> um, we used to talk about the big issues around our family table. There were five children in the family, and you know, usually on Sunday afternoons. We would we would be talking about you know something you know arguing about politics or you know some big right and wrong issue. Um, so I was, you know, I was looking forward to taking a philosophy class. That's uh, awesome. And do you remember maybe a particular theory or a particular philosopher or day where you know suddenly like you just sort of felt the brain tingle and you thought, okay, now this is something that I can really. I mean, I know you're saying that like that was sort of part of your family's like. Um, family dinners and things like that. But is there maybe a moment that stands out to you in those early classes as an undergrad, something that you really kind of chewed oh, you on? Know, and we really used to about? say, you know, uh, I can't remember whether it was religion class or ethics class, you know, is, is X right because God says it's right? Or uh, is X right because it's right? You know, hmm. or does God say X is right because it's right? Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we had little nuggets like that. Uh, you know, I remember in the religion class, there was a, we had an excellent religion teacher, uh, uh, professor, I can't remember his name, unfortunately, but he actually brought to one of the classes a uh, movie about Tibetan monks. Hmm. Um, and, and the fact that the entire Tibet 
uh, country was based on a religion um, and that when boys turned 12, they had to uh, basically uh, defend their thinking with the elders of the religion. And I also <laughs> remember that, um, and, and so they would ask big questions of 12-year-olds, you know, why, what makes the sky blue? Where does God live? Um, and these 12-year-olds would have to come up with this. And, uh, this was their journey to manhood. But this, this was the same society where you had people that could control their blood pressure by meditation, that could breathe in one nostril and out the other nostril. I mean, it was very impressive stuff. Yeah, wow. Yeah. You know, in terms of how far you can take the mind and, and what, what kind of things are possible. That's incredible. So you end up graduating from Purdue in 1970, you said, and you didn't double major. You shifted over to philosophy. So that was right. your, your one major. So you graduated with a BA in philosophy in 1970. Uh, what you know? What was that day? How did your parents react to that? What was that? Well, like? they wanted me to go to graduation. I, the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, my attitude was, why would I want to go to graduation and, and sweat? You know, because it was, it was, it was hot, and you know, you had to put this gown on. So it's like I don't need, I don't need any of that. Um, yeah. I, I skipped mine as well. <laughs> I was in a car with my dad out to Eugene, Oregon, for what it's worth. But yeah, same thing. I thought it's come on. Yeah, that sounds yeah. hot. So <laughs> now, now I've been to a number of graduations, you nice. know, and I can I can actually see, you know, some of them are pretty great. Particularly when you see a relationship between a particular professor who's very proud of a particular student, you know, yeah. who, who made it, uh, who got through uh, the curriculum and got, you know, a bachelor's, master's, PhD. Uh, that's that, that, that was exciting. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. If I had anything to change, I I love the professors I had. But nice. I was a little bit too shy, you know, so I didn't really realize you can have a very close relationship with, with you know, your professors if you want that. But you have yeah. to stick your neck out a little bit as a student. So for my two sons that went to college, and you know, I very strongly tried to get them involved with the professors. And, and you know, I think that really pays off now over the long term. Sorry, I imagine, and that that's great, I, you know, I think that's something that I encourage with my students, and I think many of the grad students and faculty do, is, is really to use your, your professors as a resource. Right. Um, but it is hard when you're 18, 19 right. years old, or, you know, and you're... Yeah, and, and, and you and basically got, think they're smart and you're an idiot, so if, you, yeah. what, what do you have to say to exactly. them? Exactly. <laughs> if it's any consolation, I still think I'm an idiot and I'm a postdoc, right. so I, yeah, I still have a hard time. Uh, but I imagine back then, the department must have been pretty small, right? I mean, yeah, can you, small. Do you remember, like, maybe the number of faculty your students I you know i'm thinking i don't remember how many students um but probably for faculty there may have been 12 or something like that maybe, yeah maybe a little bit more but you know the maybe other thing we used to do we were over now. here in university hall and we would have oh, right. we would have wine and bread uh, <laughs> um get-togethers at university hall okay yeah they weren't doing that in in honors double e <laughs> right 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 <laughs> but we would we would have these like you know, indoor and outdoor picnics of wine and bread and talk about things. It's very it was, Grecian it or sort of like <laughs> Roman. It's like it a very classical culture right. kind of approach. It was, it was great. Um, so then what was your, if, if you don't mind me asking, what was your first job out of Purdue? How did you first <clears> apply <throat> this BA in philosophy? <clears throat> My first job was at a, um, maybe I better not say the name, but it was at a <laughs> small meat market down in Lafayette. And um, <laughs> I lasted awesome. at this place for uh, about two weeks, I think. And then I got fired uh, because uh, 
the proprietor, who was an older guy, kind of crotchety, uh, was trying to show me how to wrap beef ribs in a wax paper uh, package. And every time I would almost, and then you wrapped it with string. You didn't even tape it. You had to put string around it. And I would push the bone through the wax papers. So then I would have to start over. After doing that a number of times, um, I got I got zapped. The highest paying job at that time, <laughs> which was $4 an hour, was roofing. So after that job, I became okay. a roofer. And uh, on my second day of roofing, I went up on a house that, that the roof was about 60 feet off the ground. And I finished that roofing job, but as a result of that, I decided, you know, I'm really not a roofer after all. <laughs> so, so once again, though, I have a lot of respect for for, for roofing guys because you know it's uh, it's, it's uh, it can be a dangerous job. Um, yeah, not too long ago, <coughs> they so I live in an apartment complex um, over here in Lafayette, and not too long ago they redid the roofs on all of the buildings. Right, and you know they're three stories high plus then some attic space and you know steep roof and they had these crews of like 10, 12 guys. And I mean, there was something almost like poetic or cinematic to watch them in this sort of rhythm with this like preternatural ability to keep their balance and to like do all these right. things. And uh, they would be there from, you know, basically sunrise all, to all sundown. Yeah, exactly. And to see it particularly at sunset or sunrise, there was something like kind of like the silhouettes of their their bodies like doing this. I, I mean, there was something really, really like aesthetic about it. I, they must have thought I was such a creep because I would just stand in my balcony <laughs> or like not on the back, but, you know, inside, like just looking across the balcony, like sipping my morning coffee but no i imagine that's um a little scary i'm not i'm not one for heights so i don't blame you for (laughs) moving on but there is something really impressive about it Um, so then after that i worked at uh people here may may remember a a a business called tippecanoe meat and fish so i worked there um for the rest of the summer after i graduated and i basically worked in a 34 degree cooler with my (laughs) with my uh uh, winter coat on, uh, you know, when it was super hot outside, I'm, I'm working in this 34 degree cooler all day. <laughs> Bundled up. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I get the, the, like those places, I haven't even heard of those places. And it's not so much that like those particular places you worked aren't around anymore, but I just get the feeling places like that in general, like a meat and fish market seems like the kind of thing that just isn't, probably isn't doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I tell this part of the story since I got a degree in in liberal arts to students um, because, you know, I hear sometimes complaints. Oh, I I got this degree. I can't put my degree to work, you know. And and my view was I just got to get out here and work and make some money and create some options, you know, for myself. Hmm. And so it it didn't really bother me at all. And, And my advice to students is just, you know, dive in. Go for it. Something, something good will happen. But anyway, what what did happen is uh, I always thought I could get into computer programming if I couldn't do anything else. Because at that time, they had a lot of companies who would say, you know, if you have a, a, a an academic degree, um, you know, come to our company and we'll train you to be a computer programmer. Okay. <clears throat> but when I graduated in 1970, that was a recession, so nobody was oh, getting right. jobs, and uh, so that. Plan B didn't work. So my parents had moved out to Washington, D.C., and uh, 
I thought maybe I could get a job out in Washington, D.C., so I, I, I went out there um, and um, for, I would say, four months, I couldn't find any jobs. Um, Just living at home? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, you feel horrible about yourself, basically. I've done that. Right? I did that in my yeah. mid-20s, and, you know? Uh, and I found a job at a steel factory. Okay. So I worked at a steel factory. They didn't want to hire me because the the... the Owner said, look, you know, you're a college grad. Uh, nobody else here is a college grad, so you're just going to leave when you find a better job. And I said, look, I'll take anything. I'll take any amount of pay. It was $1.85 an hour. I remember that. Oh, cool. Um, buck 85 Yeah. <laughs> and the, the thing that was most interesting about that job is I found out later that everybody that they hired, with the exception of me and the foreman that was there, were ex-convicts. And I had never you know, really talked to uh, ex-convicts before. Uh, but it was a, you know, so for the first month of work, I'd say it was very hard for me because everybody was making fun of me, college kid, you know. Yeah. But then we got to know each other, and um, it was, a, you know, a, a very uh, great experience to, That's amazing. you know, uh, see what some people have to overcome, you know. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> to sort of jump ahead a little bit and also in the interest of time yeah so um what is it that you do with your time nowadays how are you employed what are you doing with your life in general well, well let me say i have to put this transition point in so oh, absolutely. so basically there in, in washington dc in those days there were always two entities that were hiring and that was nsa and cia so I applied to NSA and CIA, and uh, you know the application process takes nine months to a year. So basically, what happened is I could have been an Arabic translator in NSA or a systems programmer at CIA. I took the CIA job, so I was at CIA for three years. At Langley, yeah, on the farm. Young, well, that's that's not the farm. Oh, that, what's, that's what's headquarters. The farm, the farm is. Out in, out in in Virginia. Ah, okay. Rural, rural Virginia. Okay. Um, so Langley's headquarters. That, yeah. And that's exactly. where you were. That's where I was. And wow. Uh, so we had the world's biggest computers. And um, makes sense. And you know, I didn't take any formal training. Uh, basically, my boss on my first day put down a pile of books about two feet high and said, you know, why don't you read these books? And if you have any questions, let me know. So, Learn this. So every day I went to work, you know, reading these books that I had no understanding of whatsoever. But what I learned from philosophy is if you read a book 10 times or 20 times, ultimately something will start making sense. So <laughs> that's, that's what happened to me. And what really kicked off my career in, in uh, computers and engineering is that turns out uh, since... I wasn't a computer science major. I am the only one who read the manuals. Nobody else read the manuals because they felt they already knew everything. So what, what that meant was when somebody wanted to do something they didn't know how to do, they would come to me and say, okay, Tom, how do you do this? And I said, well, I read the manual. You know, you go, go to this thing, it'll tell you how to do it. So you became the de facto expert, really, <coughs> even exactly. though that wasn't that's, your It's really ironic. Your you training. Know, uh, and, and that's what I found that really helped me in my in my. Uh, <laughs> That's engineering amazing. side of the brain. Uh, uh, what was the what was the like uh, language? What was the programming language back then? Uh, so, uh, since I was self taught, I learned everything. I yeah, played Cobol. I did PL one. I did uh, uh, Snowball. I did uh, 
<laughs> what they called IBM ALC assembly language. Um, wow. You know. But anyway, that launched a career in computers, which I loved, and I loved programming. Uh, You know, I look at programming as as half art and half science uh, in many ways. Um, And uh, so I I was at Hughes. I became um, um, the head of engineering at Hughes in uh, Germantown, Maryland, in San Diego. And uh, I had always wanted to start my own company, so eventually I left and started my first company, Telegy Networks, uh, as an entrepreneur. And since that time, um, you know, what I enjoy most is starting companies and helping other people start companies. And, um, uh, it, you know, I was very fortunate that Telegy turned out to be, you know, not only my first company, but my first big success. So that kind of got me launched. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's... It's really starting from scratch, and it sort of goes back to those days where, you know, I, I graduated from philosophy, couldn't get a job, had to get a job, and, you know, that's what starting a company is like. Starting a company, the first day is one of the best days of your life. <laughs> the second day is one of the worst days of your life. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. Oh, no. I, why yeah, did this I This is real, this? yeah. <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, reality check. Yeah, this right. is happening. Yeah. That's so, amazing. you know, with companies, you're always running out of money a constant problem um and people and people (laughs) yeah i've been there (laughs) (laughs) especially as a philosophy graduate student you know the running out of money problem i think is universal yeah yeah exactly and and so that doesn't you know to run out of money doesn't uh i mean it scares everybody but it sure you know you also also get in the mode of thinking okay what do i need to do about it you know how do Mm -hmm. i get out of this thing Mm -hmm. um and and so I've got a lot of experience with that, and I really enjoy, you know, helping entrepreneurs in, in that regard. Right now, I'm starting three companies. Um, so you're uh, not busy, obviously. I'm working <laughs> with 18 other startup companies. Um, That's amazing. And um, you know, it's just a lot of fun. It's mostly high tech stuff. Okay. Um, and uh, very enjoyable. And you know, you get to work with people that you like, and you get to work with people that are are, are basically smart and are not afraid to take a risk. Let me ask you this. If you had advice to give to people out there today thinking about studying or majoring in philosophy or currently majoring in philosophy, um, any advice you can give in terms of how to apply what they learn or, in your experience, how you were able to apply it you know, after that, let's well, say they don't think about going to grad school and doing an academic yeah. career, but uh, you know, what's the benefit for you from studying? Yeah, actually, philosophy? well, you know, my original plan was I was going to go to grad school and okay. I was going to go to University of Texas at Austin, where one of my favorite philosophers was a guy named O.K. Bausma uh, was there, and uh, but uh, I ended up at the last minute making the decision that I wasn't going to go to grad school, and so I didn't. Uh, so, I, you know, the first thing I would say about liberal arts or something like philosophy in general is don't, don't be afraid. You know? Mm. <laughs> you know, maybe it sounds like it's taking a big risk. I'm not sure it is because uh, you, you, you learn some things that are very long-lasting. Um, hmm. um, and uh, there are some, you know— when when we did the fir- very first uh, Shaw lecture series, it took me back to uh, we had a gentleman from Yale who was outstanding, and 
took me back to my days here at Purdue, uh, where about half, well, basically the, the way the lectures work is the, the person talks for 45 minutes or an hour, and then there's a bunch of questions for a half hour to an hour, right? And um, what you found with, with great philosophy professors is it was almost impossible for you to ask them a question in their realm of their domain knowledge that they had not already thought of many, many times. Hmm. And when you see that in action, it's extremely exciting, you know, to realize that this person has dived into this problem so deeply that a normal person will not be able to ask them a question that they have not already considered themselves because that's the, that's the discipline they have. Now, yes. what's interesting is on engineering or in starting companies, that skill set is great. And, and that tends to be the kind of people I'm attracted to, you know, as people who, if they take on an engineering problem, um, you know, they, they are going to be all over that problem and they're, and they're not going to run into any something unexpected. They're going to expect the unexpected, but they're not, you know... Well. Uh, you know, they're going to anticipate, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I guess that also solidifies for me. I should not have studied philosophy because every time I've gone to like a grad conference, I've been asked a question that I just <laughs> was like, I have never even considered that. So clearly I picked the wrong uh, the wrong field or the wrong trajectory. Um, in terms of the Shoal Lecture Series, do you remember when was that first one? How long have you been doing this now? I can't remember. Okay. I'm sorry. That's all right. Um, but it's been going on for a while, and it's yeah. usually every fall you'll host a lecture, right? right? Yeah. Um, and in terms of... And, you know, basically one of the reasons I did that is we had some great lectures when I was here as a student. Somebody, I don't know who, who, who it was, but somebody in the faculty saw to it that they were bringing in people from the outside. So G.E. Amscom, uh, you know, who was a disciple of Wittgenstein, was actually here at really? Purdue. Nice. And, you know... People attempted to ask her a question. <laughs> she, <laughs> her her whole personality was was you know similar to what you read about Wittgenstein. Interesting. Uh, um, and and so I wanted that for the students and faculty here, you know, to be able to reach out and try to get world class thinkers. Because anytime you get to be with a world class thinker, it is exciting. <laughs> it's, it doesn't matter what the field is. Uh, you know, I love philosophy, and so it's particularly exciting in, in that field for me. But it's it's always uh, fascinating um, when somebody who's world class starts talking about an issue, and you know, very quickly you you realize, wow, I have a lot to learn about that particular issue. That's amazing. So that's a good way to segue to the end here. I should say that today we are hosting. Or you're hosting a show lecture. Her name is Jenin Ishmael. She is from the Department of Philosophy at Columbia. I know this is not going to be the exact title, but it's about time, totality, and determinism, I believe. She does uh, right. philosophy of physics. Um, so that is today. Today is Thursday, October the 18th. That's at 4.30. But just to make this announcement for listeners, that is being video recorded and will eventually make its way to YouTube, as I understand. So it won't be on the podcast series, won't be on the grindstone, but listeners will be, listeners will be able to find it. And we'll make an announcement on social media when it is up. 
Great. But as far as today, want to give a major thanks to to Tom Scholl, who is a graduate of the Purdue Department of Philosophy, 1970, and a great supporter of our department. Thank you, Tom, for being here with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. And again, my name is Matthew Kroll. I'm a postdoc here in the department. I'm the host. And a big, big thank you to Reyes Espinoza, who is the producer of the Grindstone podcast and a graduate student in the department. Uh, You can follow us on social media and look for the next episode of the Grindstone. Thank you. And thank you, Tom. Thank you. The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Turity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo, underscore Purdue.